Hey folks, it's John here again from A's for Alcoholic. I hope you're all doing well. Today's conversation is with Brandy Kay, and she comes to us from a group called Boring Little Girls Club. And what is Boring Little Girls Club? They are a community of sober women, trans and non-binary folks who have fun without alcohol and recreational drugs. It's, it's a social club, and through our conversation, a couple of things, the importance of, of socializing and that it doesn't always have to be program-based. I think one of the things I took away and, and that I often forget is that our socialization doesn't always have to be over book study or, or whatever you know your program might be, but that it can be about they do a clothes swap and they have coffee chats and all kinds of different stuff that they do, activities that don't always have to revolve around sobriety. But the important thing is that everybody there is sober, sober curious, or looking to get sober in some way. And I also really appreciated our conversation today just because it can, we, we come from such different backgrounds and yet as she is telling her story, I am continually struck by how similar it is to mine. So yeah, I, I, it was a pleasure. It was really great to talk with her and listen to her. It's very, it was a very insightful talk. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Brandy Kay. Brandy, thank you for this. Um, I appreciate your time. Uh, I know everyone's busy and there's a lot going on in the world. Um, one of the things that always fascinated me about my alcoholism and my recovery was trying to trace back my own personal, what I call like my alcoholic lineage in that when was the very first drink I had, but then not just that, but also when was the first time I was affected by alcohol or drugs? You know, was it something in my childhood? And so that's, that's always my favorite question um, to ask somebody is when were they first affected by alcoholism or addiction? Yeah, uh, that's an excellent question, uh, John. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic family. Um, so uh, you know, it's, uh, was very normalized for me from, from really the beginning of my life. Um, in my family, um, you drank if you were happy, you drank if you were sad, you drank if it was raining. It was just one of the things that, uh, was always prevalent. Um, however, I will say, you know, I have to, uh, uh mention that it was the sixties, it was the seventies. And so social norms back then were, were pretty, uh, a little bit looser, I think, than they were. And so uh, my first remembering of alcohol is just actually stealing people's beer bottles um, as a young child at parties that my uh, parents were having. And it was kind of funny, you know, it was like, oh, isn't she cute? You know, and so that was always, you know, it was a positive reaction. It was funny. Um, and it didn't taste bad to me. I don't ever remember going, you know, so uh, that uh, in itself probably says something. Um, however, 
my first memory of actually getting drunk would have been at nine years old. So and what, what uh, my mom there? had we, I'm sorry? I just said, what happened there at nine years old? Yeah, yeah. right? Uh, my mom had remarried and there was a celebration happening and uh, I was allowed champagne uh, and I had too much because wow, did it taste good. Um, I just remember like, oh, it was just, my mom made fun of me because I actually said yummers and licked my lips like it was magic. So uh, it was an ongoing joke for me around uh, kind of growing up, oh, yummers, hey, Brandy. And so, um, yeah. That just actually, uh, you know, speaks to kind of the normalization of alcohol within my family unit also. Because um, none of these at the time were negative experiences for me. Sure. You get, I mean, especially getting that, um, the adulation and the positive feedback for the behavior as a young child about, you know, oh, isn't that cute grabbing beer bottles or having it. Now you have a, you, you have a cute catchphrase attached to drinking at nine years old. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and so that's the first time. Does that, do you begin, I mean, I don't know how, how a nine-year-old would drink regularly, but was there a period where you began to drink regularly? Uh, I can say for sure, like the, um, the kind of the uh, sneaking of alcohol and the binge drinking probably started around 13, 14 mm -hmm. years old. Um, I kind of got busted for it. Um, and my um, family took the approach that they would rather have me do it in their home. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was kind of allowed. My family home kind of became the place where all my friends could go and drink. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it, it just wasn't, you know, it seemed like they just thought it was a normal stage of development. And, and I, you know, I'm assuming it was for all of them, uh, you know, in their journeys. Um, so, you know, as I speak about this, you know, sometimes I just want, I see my face cringing a little bit and it, it sounds like such an awful narrative of uh, my family. However, I just, you know, I'm sharing this one, this one side of it and I just want to point that out. So sure. Yeah. I mean, people are, people are human beings and multifaceted and have so yeah. much good and joy. And I, I certainly would not blame somebody, you know, if, if that was the norm and that was seen as, as something that was just okay at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, especially if, like you said, if that was in their development and that's kind of these things that get passed down to our kids um, as behaviors around alcohol. That's, um, yeah, very well said. You know, what we observe as children, we will generally repeat. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see that a lot with myself. I mean, I see my dad all the time in little, little weird behaviors and I'm going, Hey, let's just, you know, especially, and not all bad, but you know, definitely like, let's, let's check that one, John. Let's be very aware of that one and not follow through. <clears throat> so 13 is, um, that's like junior high school, sixth grade or something like that. Yeah. 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 About there for sure. So, so you're drinking what? Like, 
every weekend? Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, every, every weekend for sure. Um, it was just fun to party. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say, though, that uh, right from the get-go, I never had an off switch. Uh, you know, I was always the one who got, uh, you know, inebriated to complete blackout. Mm -hmm. um, that started right off from the get-go. Uh, yeah, I never, I never had an off switch. Yeah. So, um, yeah, um, it, yeah, that, and it just never, um, you know, it becomes kind of, uh, you know, you're experimenting. It's like those, those teenage years and, mm -hmm. and I didn't recognize it then as, as, as a problem. It was like, it kind of became more of a like, wow, can Brandy drink a lot kind of thing? And like, little bit again of a, a small social reward right for kind of being able to pack them back uh, and keep up with the boys so uh, yeah well there's always I mean that's definitely um, especially at when you say like keep up with the boys as you know growing up as a, as, as a boy it was very much and as a young man a badge of honor with how much I could drink and how much you, you know and people around me would and some people would be like, yeah, that's great. And other people are like, my God, are you okay? And so I completely understand the, um, yeah, the reward of it. And then it becoming, especially at that young age, did you find it um, to become part of your identity? I mean, were you into other things? Were there activities? Were there sports or, or, or hobbies or no, not so, so much. I mean, uh, what, what were hobbies for me? I was trying to think. Um, at the time, my high school offered a, an athletic first aid training course. So that was something I was kind of involved in extracurricularly. And there was a, a coach and a teacher that kind of always had an eye out for me. Um, I will say that I moved a lot in, in those years. Um, I, my parents were separated. Mm -hmm. I went to three different high schools. And so there wasn't a lot of a, a time really for maybe a reputation or an identity, but uh, I guess what happened was I always found my people, right? And it kind of goes to like what you were talking about as um, those people who are like, oh, hey, you know, when you're just being silly and ridiculously drunk and the other ones that you kind of scare and they're like, um, those are the pe people you end up hanging out with are the ones that are like accepting of your behavior. Right. Yeah. And so I did, you know, there was always people to gravitate towards and being the new kid all the time. Um, I don't know. I think that I just, it was easy for me to kind of duck around and, maybe not have as many eyes on me through those years as, as, as maybe normally would have had I been in a, the same place. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just kind of like, Oh, new girl. And so nobody really knows. And I always found too. And you, when you talk about drinking in high school and at a very young age and finding your people, um, there's this feeling of, if I act out because it's been rewarded for so long, then I will be accepted. And so it becomes this, you know, 
defense mechanism or, or coping mechanism for me to deal with making friends or looking, basically searching for maybe the love that I didn't get from my dad in a way, in a really distorted way. Mm-hmm. And I always found that to be something too, that there's this, well, look, John can drink a lot and he's a lot of fun, right? I mean, I don't know if you, you, you felt that way too, or you were, you were just so much fun to be around and hey, let's get Brandy and she'll do it. She'll drink it, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can absolutely relate. Uh, I will, uh, you know, in my uh, later on in my years, that kind mm-hmm. of it, it expanded from alcohol into other substances to just because of that thing. Sure, Brandy will try it, right? So, uh-huh. uh, yeah, and always being fun. I was never a downer when I was drunk. Uh, you know, never had bouts of anger or violence. Um, and so great, grateful for that one because that, that gets yeah. people in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so when does, when does alcohol turn into other things? How long, so when you're drinking heavily in high school, how far does that go on for, for you until something yeah, so, else? Yeah. Interestingly enough, um, when I was 16, uh, I started to recognize that, uh, drinking all the time wasn't normal. Uh, yeah, I guess I'd been exposed to uh, other people's families and maybe had had some period of stability in my life. And um, yeah, my mom and I weren't getting along so good. And uh, my mom was <clears throat> going through a lot in her personal life and making the decision to kind of drink daily to cope with how she was feeling. As a teenager, that just, it just wasn't working. We were fighting and um I actually called uh, the uh, AA hotline. There was like a 1-800 number that I found in the phone book back then. Um, And they referred me to a local um, outpatient addictions treatment center um, in my community. It was adult. They didn't have anything for youth back then. This would have been in the early 80s. And so, uh, and in my community, they didn't. But uh, yeah, so... Um, I ended up seeing a counselor there and of course they asked me if I was drinking (laughs) and I was honest. I was honest. So I actually went through uh, like a six or eight week adult outpatient treatment program through the summer, uh, which I hid from my mom. Wow. Uh, And it kind of just started me thinking about it. It's just not normal. However, was I willing to look at myself in that not normal? No, no, I was still in the like, well, you know, it's not going to happen to me. It's just, you know, it's that. It's, anyway, so the denial was still alive and well for my own experience, but recognizing the family and societal norms or the, the family norms I grew up with, not, not uh, okay was around 16. Um, yeah. And so you do this outpatient thing over the summer and does, does it, but it, does it, does anything stick or are you, are you, do, do you feel, okay, well, maybe I should, I've done this now. Is it, is it a feeling of like, I've graduated from this, I finished this, now I don't have a problem anymore and I can go back to my behavior. Um, you know, I think I had the mindset going in that it wasn't really my problem. I was there to try and learn about my, my mom and maybe how I could, uh, 
uh, help her. <laughs> okay. You know, I just wasn't there yet. I was 16. So yeah, sure. Yeah. It's yeah. One of those times. And then how but, long do you continue to drink for? I mean, is this, um... Oh yeah. So I go, I continue to drink actually until 28 years of age. Okay. Um, so, uh, I recognized my drinking as alcoholism at 21. Um, however, mm. was not prepared to do anything about it. I kind mm. of dug in and gave this, well, I just kind of gave in and was like, so I'm an alcoholic. Fuck it. Really? Excuse the language. I just mm -hmm. was like, let's just take this on a ride. And that's kind of when all the other substances came into my life. Also, I was kind of in a bit of a self-destruct mode, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, didn't see it as that back then. Just saw it as I'm going to party my face off. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I did that. Um, and I did it globally. So I, in, in my addiction, I still managed to travel. I, I lived in Japan. I went to Korea. I, wow. I lived in Australia. I uh, also lived in San Francisco and Los Angeles during those years. So um, it's amazing what, you know, uh, functional, somewhat functional or what people in active addiction, I should say, can actually uh, accomplish. Um, mm -hmm. And I also realize that there's a stereotype to that person. And if you don't outwardly carry that stereotype, you can, you can fudge things sometimes until, until it starts to creep through the cracks, right? Which it always does. Always. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can get away with it and you can, you can make it, I, you know, one of the things that I think I learned in active alcoholism was the ability. So once you learn what, what what an alcoholic quote unquote looks like, then you can learn to hide those parts. And I know that I did that a lot too, where I was very, even subconsciously to myself, manipulative in how I presented myself in certain ways and how I would dress or behave. Well, until I was completely blackout drunk, then it was it didn't matter anymore and nothing mattered. And um so you talk about other substances and you talk about um, being 21 and that sort of, I am resolved that I am an alcoholic. This is the way it is. And there's no changing it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to accept it and roll with it. Um, so what leads you into what other substances and how did you find yourself um, getting into those? Uh, well, I, uh, I traveled to Japan uh, in my early 20s and um, ecstasy was just making it uh, uh, just making it onto the scene. And mm -hmm. so um, that was my first introduction into chemical drugs. And then, of course, cocaine followed. Um, uh, I had always done mushrooms. I shouldn't have say always. As a teenager, I experimented with mushrooms and acid and, and those things. But yeah. Um, I also would take prescription medications were introduced to me then. And so from about 21 to 28, I was, uh, you know, just taking uh, anything and everything. However, you know, cocaine became one of my better friends because my, my drug of choice was always alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so I could be much more functional uh, and I could drink more 
when I was using um, stimulants, particularly cocaine at the time. For sure. For sure. Um, Yeah. I, I, I have very, now they're startling, but very vivid memories of, of doing cocaine just so I could drink some more, just so I could quote unquote sober up and get through something or, you know, the idea of rationing cocaine for the next morning. I don't know if you've ever had those, those moments too. And so it's always this, it gets so, it gets so dirty and so gross. And at the time it was like, well, this is just, well, I'm going to need this because I'm going to have things to do the next day. Or I've got, we're, you know, we have to go out and drink for the next 12 hours. So I'm, this is required. (laughs) So Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was just how we did it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remember the first time I ever did ecstasy and I was like, oh my God, where has this been? What is this? This is magic. Right. Yeah. Um, it was also one of the strangest and worst, one of the worst hangovers too. It was pretty bad. Well, I mean, there was everything coupled with it, right? When you start <laughs> mixing and you, you talk about, well, we just kind of did whatever. And, you know, and that was very much, oh, somebody, had some surgery and it's got some old pain pills. Well, yeah, sure. Why not? Why wouldn't we? I mean, no big deal. Let's try it. It's fun. We're experimenting. It's, this is life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as you continue down this, are you seeing at, at any point, are you seeing problems after you've, you know, accepted that you're an alcoholic and you've accepted that you're just going to live this way to do problems arise or are you just having fun in Japan? No, uh, well, I went from Japan. Uh, uh, I, I, I moved around a lot, so I worked at a I worked a summer job, and so in Canada, and so I went from Japan to Canada to Australia to Canada to San Francisco, uh, and um, attempted to go to design school there, and I I made it for about a year and a half, mm-hmm. but um, in um, San Francisco, uh, crack cocaine was introduced to me. So that kind of interfered with things greatly. Um, and, uh, quickly though, that one, I snapped out of that one pretty quick cause I got myself in some pretty gnarly situations that were very dangerous. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh yeah, smartened up out of that, but it still didn't smarten me up to look at the rest of my behavior, which is really shocking. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> yeah, so then, you know what, uh, what happened was the sobering moments was about uh, 26, 27. Uh, it got to the point where I was no longer functional and I lost my job, I lost my apartment, and I was couch surfing. Um, I was still looking okay, but honestly, the, um, the drugs and alcohol had started to take a toll on my physical appearance. Um, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and so I used to get away with a lot because I, I looked cute and I could play the party role, but when people start seeing that wear and tear on you and when you start looking like an addict, uh, and you've got the shakes and you're way too thin and, you know, it just got real ugly real quick. Uh, you know, well, maybe it doesn't seem quick to others, but you know, when it started to go down, wow, did it go down fast? Mm-hmm. And I will say that, that, uh, the moment that it took that dive was the moment I, um, got up in the morning and there was alcohol left over beside my bed. And I was like, Oh, 
I bet you that's going to help, right? And I drank the alcohol in the morning. Wow, did it help. Uh, <laughs> but that quickly took me, because in my brain, I was like, well, that fixes everything. That's just perfect. I've got a solution. And so that quickly took things to a dark place really quickly. Because when you start drinking first thing in the morning and you have to sustain that throughout the day, uh, things get real messy and you can't hide it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I that that, <laughs> that you I am always amazed when I talk to somebody who is from has a vastly different life experience and I'm hearing all these things and it's exactly where I was. And drinking in the morning and just enough and then trying to measure the doses and knowing things like I could have two beers. I'd have one beer so I could go back to sleep for a couple hours and then I'd wake up and I'd have another so I could get ready for work. And then I was a bartender for many years. And so um, it was like, if I have one shot of vodka every 45 minutes, I'll be okay. I'll still be able to function and I can drive home, which sounds insane. But um, so drinking the alcohol you say, I found a solution. And how long does that solution last? Well, I was, uh, I was homeless and couch surfing probably within six to eight months after that. Right. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't really take long because I was already in, in full blown addiction. I just, yeah, the daily drinking, uh, and getting me fired, got me fired from my job. So, mm -hmm. Once that happened, it uh, spiraled down really fast. Mm -hmm. so. And where was there was what was the moment where you finally said, or was there a moment where you finally said, "This is not working anymore," and something else? I should probably try something else. Yeah, I you know it's a vague memory. I had just spent the weekend in Vegas with a bunch of friends uh, and hadn't really you know, slept for days. Uh, I made a phone call home to my mom and I told her that I needed to get on a plane and come home. Uh, and she didn't hesitate. Uh, and she got me a ticket. Uh, you know, in all those years I had been traveling those last 10 years, I, she never got that phone call. So, uh, yeah, I got my butt home. My mom was living on Vancouver Island at the time. And, uh, I, um, it was a bit bumpy. Uh, there's a bit of a story there. Uh, mm -hmm. my mom was worried about me seeking treatment. My mom tried to help me. She wanted to try and manage my alcoholism and it was really out of good intentions. Like she tried helping me limit. She, you know, all the rationalizing justifications, all the bargaining that we do as, as folks who are alcoholics or addicts with ourselves, she tried to do that with me mm -hmm. because, you know, she wasn't well herself yet. And so, um, I had to really leap outside my family unit and, uh, to get the help that I needed. Um, so there was a period of time when they just didn't understand and uh, we couldn't communicate for a little while. It brings up a lot of, you know, whenever you talk about the fact that you don't drink and you must see this socially, 
is that people start, it, it automatically causes people to reflect on their own habits, right? Mm -hmm. And then they think you're sitting there in judgment of them when it's like, dude, that's not what's happening at all. I just had to do this for me. Like whatever's going on for you is whatever's going on for you. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it caused some alienation from the family unit for a bit. As I said, you know, drinking is really a normalized behavior and um, it took a while for some understanding to come between us all again. You know, and you you say, my mother. When you say that your mother tried rationing, limiting all these other things, and and it's it's so fascinating to me. And when I hear this, and what I'm what I imagine is that she is trying to help you. And if she says you need to stop drinking, then that would mean that she would need to stop drinking. And that, that I mean the 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 level of the power that alcohol takes over, you know, has over a person that your own child, it, it, it's, it's better that my, that I try to fix my own child or help my own child, not fix, but help in a way that it will still allow me my addiction. And it's yeah. so hard to hear, you know, like it's, I mean, it's such a powerful drug. <laughs> It is. It really is. And I think what really, you know, what I think about all the time is how socially normalized drinking is in our cultures and, um, well, in our culture, uh, particularly North America. So, um, yeah, I think it just goes to show that that piece of things and how uncomfortable and how awkward it is for folks when you try to take away something that is like television or coffee or, you know, those kinds of things for them. It, it, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, you're right. You, you become, when you, when you tell people you don't drink and they're like, well, what do you mean? Like nothing. You know, I work in a restaurant and I still, and I, I don't make a big deal about it. I answer questions when asked, but I still have people who are like, Hey, did you want to, we got this wine in and I'm, you, you should have a taste. You should taste this. And I go, I'm not drinking today. No, I'm good. Thank you. You enjoy, you know? And, um, but also that level of people, the, the self-reflection that other people get while drinking. And it's like, Hey man, you do you. <clears throat> And I've had people come up and ask me about it later and wanting to express some sort of interest in quitting. And I say, well, you know, we can go to a meeting, we can talk and inevitably, I mean, cause the hardest thing, and I don't blame them, but the hardest thing is to take that initial step of action. Right. <clears throat> so when we make a plan to go to a meeting or do something and then they just never show up or they don't, you know, message me back or something like that. And I'm always like, it's totally cool. I totally get it. It's not easy and it's terrifying. <clears throat> so it absolutely, it absolutely <laughs> is terrifying. It is. It's uh, it, yeah. And I, I don't know. It's terrifying. But I think I was, you know, when when everything else that you're doing isn't working anymore, and every day is basically like a living hell. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, you know, and I think this is what is important for folks to know is there is a big difference between alcoholics and problem drinkers. 
you know, and we don't, we don't often talk about that a lot. And, you know, in your heart of hearts, you're going to know if you're an alcoholic, um, because it starts to take the central focus of your life and it starts to just lead, dictate everything. Problem drinkers, you know, it can really wreck your life, but you have the ability to stop, take some time for reflection on maybe your terrible actions, and maybe repeat the same mistake. But it's, they're two different things. And so, yes, my uh, drinking was always alcoholic. And so I think it's a really important distinction uh, sure. for people to make. However, uh, if you use alcohol as a way to cope with your life on a daily basis, uh, th those are questions you might want to start asking yourself, right? Certainly, certainly. So in this, you, you call your mom, you fly home, she tries to help. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Where did you find, where did you ultimately find the help that you, that you needed? Yeah, I uh, went and stayed with an old friend that I had worked that summer job up in Canada with. And uh, I just honestly went down to the um, adult outpatient treatment center. Uh, it was in an old building and I walked up to the second floor and uh, I was shaking like a leaf. My heart was pounding. Every ounce of me did not want to be doing this. I was humiliated, um, but I was desperate. I was broken and I knew that the way that I was doing life wasn't working. Um, I was only, I was actually only going to kill myself. Um, I knew that in my heart of hearts. So I went, went through treatment. Um, I went through a, a woman's treatment program. I then took the opportunity to stay in a group home for women in recovery for the next year of my life. Uh, and I took up all the counseling that could be offered to me. Um, what came out of my healing, of course, and, and I think many folks will relate to this, is that um, I had a lot of adverse childhood experiences that um, contributed to my feelings of, uh, you know, all those deep, dark feelings we have that are painful to us that we use alcohol to cope with. And it works in the beginning. It sure does. Um, but it's, it, it stopped working. Um, and it only became a, a, a living nightmare for me. Alcohol became when you don't want to drink, but you have to drink because if you don't drink, it, it, you're, you're going to feel real, real sick. And, um, terrible things can happen. So it's a terrible place to be stuck. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about the, I'm having flashbacks and thinking about, you know, you say life, the way I was living life wasn't working anymore and how alcohol most definitely at some point in your life and in mine was a solution. Mm -hmm. And I still have, I have memories of some of the worst hangovers in some of the worst pain, in the worst, the, the most self-destructive moments. And those moments, I don't ever remember thinking I should stop this. I only remember thinking that more alcohol was going to be the solution I needed today. And that the, the, the idea of a solution other than, than alcohol 
just was not anywhere near my head and that it had to come to a point where, and that's, that blows my mind today that, that I would have those thoughts, but that's, you know, what I'm hearing from you. Um, it's, it's powerful stuff. Um, when you get into this, you, you, and it's a, it's a, it's a treatment center and it's a woman's sober living house. Is that what you said? Yeah. So I, I essentially became roommates with five other women who were in various stages of recovery from addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, and wow, it, it, you know, it's very layered dynamics living in, in those situations. There was, uh, I think I said five other women and some would come and go. Some of them were also not successful. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, those, those were, those were the harder moments or the, the biggest teaching lessons is, is kind of losing someone back to their addiction. It's uh, very sobering when you're in early recovery. And I think, you know, that just goes, uh, that piece of that is why um, some sort of community or recovery support in early recovery is so important because it's so fragile in the beginning. And mm -hmm. I learned so much by, you know, living and committing to recovery um, for the amount of time that I did. Now, is that everybody's journey? And can we all do that? No, uh, no. And I, I don't recommend one way for any human, whatever way you want to get well or sober, give it a try. Give anything a try and don't give up trying is all mm -hmm. I can say. So how long have you been sober now? <clears throat> sober now. I got, I got sober in 2002. Okay. So I will <clears throat> say that uh, I had a wonderful run at sobriety. It was not a straight process. Uh, I relapsed. I'm going to say three or four years ago now. So I had a long time sober. Wow. I had been in the rooms of AA for a real, real long time. Um, that was how I got sober. Um, I uh, credit AA for opening my heart and mind to the concept of a higher power, to helping me build and work on um, my spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, I was very closed off to that. I was raised in a Catholic, kind of ex-Catholic family. And so, you know, the word God was, uh, yeah, and it had a lot of loaded connotations and a very, uh, it was a very, uh, we were to fear God <laughs> in my house. Mm -hmm. So spirituality and God and religion, like in the beginning of AA was <clears throat> really hard, but it, it, it's what got me uh, open to exploring for myself what uh, a higher power would mean to me. And, and, and that's the gift with AA. You get to choose. Yeah. Um, and you don't even have to define it. You know, yeah. it just, it, it, it just has to be something else. So yeah. Um, AA was a long part of my journey. Mm -hmm. um, I will say uh, I, you know, let, let my uh, attendance slide as we do. I got busy with other life. Uh, I got to university. Um, my mother got ill and I was looking um, after her. Uh, and um, to be honest, after she passed, um, I did relapse. Um, 
it was an emotional overload, but I also hadn't um, been doing the work uh, to support myself through that with my recovery, right? Um, so I do take ownership over that relapse. However, um, had I not gone through that, um, I, I wouldn't be where I, I am today and I'm, I'm pretty solid in my recovery. I have zero, zero questions now uh, if I'm cured, <laughs> if I ever get to enjoy a drink again. Um, I have no doubt in my mind that I am an alcoholic. I will always, always be an alcoholic. But I had to go out there and, you know, just give it another whirl. Because after, you know, I think it was 14 or so years, I, yeah, what, you know, maybe. I let yeah. my mind, my thinking, um, because I had moved away from my recovery supports, I let my thinking come back. Your thinking always comes back and gets you. <laughs> so just remember that, everybody, because, yeah, it did. And my brain convinced me it would be okay to drink again, and I knew it wasn't. I knew it wasn't. Stop thinking. Um, so... Can you, can I ask you, do you have a, a strong definition of your higher power or is it, I, I, cause I, mine is very, it's still very vague to me and I still work on trying to figure out something, but I, I'm always curious and, and you don't have to share if you don't want to, it's, it can be private yeah. for some people too, but. <clears throat> well, I went on such a long journey with that. Um, because I, you know, for me, I just had to know, I had to understand. And so I, um, I studied First Nations uh, mythology and spirituality. I studied Buddhism. I studied um, Bhagavad Gita, the, the Hindu um, principles and philosophies of life. Um, I, you know, I practiced yoga. I, I practiced Tai Chi for some time. There was all kinds of things I looked into. And um, you know, the more I tried to define it, the, the less I knew I could. And the less, and the more I just became okay with that. Um, yeah. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than this small mind of mine. It really is. And so <laughs> I have let that go. And I just, um, it's a felt sense for me, I think more than anything, when I know that I'm taking care of myself in a healthy way so that I can connect with my spirit, you know, to the mm. world around me. Um, that's important. And, you know, there's a lot of things I have to do to keep my spirit, myself, well, holistically. Right. There's lots I right. do. Um, and, you know, whether that's a curse or a blessing of, of being in recovery, that's, you can choose to decide what that is for you, you know? Mm -hmm. I find it, I've, you know, having to do the self-care that I have to do um, to be the best I can be in this world now is... Uh, it's a gift. Um, however, I got to stay on top of it because when I don't, uh, yeah, things, things start to slip. I don't have the luxury of letting it slide. <laughs> right. No, I hear you. I mean, it's the same thing we were talking about it the other day about <clears throat> just you can't leave the dishes in the sink for, you know, forever, right? They're, they're eventually 
they're going to get crusty and old and moldy and they're going to attract ants and then you're going to have an infestation. And so I think about that as a metaphor for my sobriety sometime. And so, okay, well, did you clean out the sink? Did you, did you do the laundry? You can't just let dirty laundry pile up. And so there's these level of maintenance <clears throat> and whatever that is, that's different for a lot of people that's going to meetings. It's right. That's journaling and, 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 and whatever else helping other alcoholics, whatever, uh, you know, but it's, it's been vital to my recovery. It's just like you say that, you know, taking care of it, being on top of it, not forgetting it. And that, that there are going to be things in our lives that test that. And we don't, even if we fall or drink it doesn't mean it has to be the end. It doesn't mean that those tools, you know, the, the I, I think about that too. All those years, do you, did you think that, oh, well, I've lost all of those years or, or did you, do you look at it and say, well, I had, I had learned all those tools so that when this moment came, I was able to use them again. In the beginning, because, you know, we want to punish ourselves. In the beginning, I was just like, I've just screwed everything up. I've lost everything. I just catastrophized and made the biggest, you know, just had to drag myself down to the lowest denomination where I would mm -hmm. let myself kind of lift myself back up. Um, and uh, no, I didn't lose all those years. And yeah, I had a wealth of tools and a wealth of information um, to fall back on. And I had a whole community of support to fall back on. Right. Mm -hmm. Even if I hadn't been there, you know, for over a year, year and a half, they were still there and they're always there. And it doesn't even matter if you recognize a face in the room, they're going to be there for you. And so I think that is a key aspect about, um, recovery is community. Um, yeah cannot do this alone and whatever that community looks like for you find it yeah. um and and let them know what's going on for you and where you're at and, and what you need um because yeah without without outside help and outside support on the on my entire journey since 2002 i wouldn't be where i was at today and um, um and I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty, pretty happy and pretty solid in my recovery. And I have a lot of amazing things going in my life that, you know, had I gone on my initial hint of just like, fuck it, I'm an alcoholic. Let's just ride this out. I wouldn't have had all of these amazing opportunities in my lifetime. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I know it feels really dark for people and, and when they're stuck, but, um, you know, find your community, find yeah. what's going to work for you and just keep trying. You, yeah, you talk about the, the, the community still being there. And it always reminds me of, I think it was in my first year of sobriety and I was not, I didn't jump right in. I had to be dragged and I had to take my time. And, but there was a period where I was working nights and I was going to one meeting a week and I was like hanging on for dear life with that meeting. And I finally, I just hated it. I hated going and I was done with it. And I was developing a resentment toward 
AA itself and the meeting. And I said, you know what? I'm not going anymore and nobody can make me. And nobody was there to make me. Nobody, I, I was having that argument in my own head. And so I quit for two or three months or something like that. And then I remember thinking, oh God, are they checking attendance? They're going to know that I didn't go. What are they going to think of me? And nobody, I ended up going to the same meeting two or three months later and nobody said anything. They were just like, oh, hey, did you have a good summer? How you doing? Good to see you again. And I, I was like, oh, it's not about me here. <laughs> it's not about you. It's so great. Our egos and my goodness, right? And yeah, uh, being being in those rooms really helps you understand your ego. I think mm -hmm. that's good. Um, and I think, you know, having more than one community is also a really good way to go. Um, yeah. as, you, as you mentioned, you know, you can kind of, sometimes you can build up some resentments. Maybe, maybe just something happens, but you know, I think diversifying is also a good thing. Um, you know, for me, I, I have a community. I also have, of course, um, a sober, uh, girls group that I belong to here in town. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that uh, that is purely social, and so that was a, another thing that was lacking in my life was what do you what do you do for fun in sobriety, mm -hmm. and how do you do that, and what does it look like, and who will do that with you, and so finding um, support in that, so I could just you know start doing some of the things that I love to do that may be in a drinking environment, but have the safety of a group of people around me to um, just hang with through the night and you know, leave when we wanna leave. Um, it's, it's been a really good addition to uh, my recovery program for sure. So, and I, would, I, wanna, I want to ask you about uh, Boring Little Girls Club. I was, it was, it was suggested to me by a friend in Seattle and she said, Hey, you should reach out and, and maybe there's somebody there who might want to talk to you. And that's what spurred me to look into it. And so what is Boring Little Girls Club? What are we? So we are a group of sober, um, uh, sorry, we are a group of women, trans, non-binary folks who get together. Uh, in sobriety from alcohol or recreational drugs. Um, and we do fun things together. Um, we also do, uh, with COVID, we have done some online. We've had to shift to online programming. We used to do um, social events within the community. Uh, for example, you know, we had a, a disco night. Um, we've had uh, a love fest for uh, Valentine's Day. We've um, put on uh, shows with drag performances. We've done a lot of a variety of things. We've also done more, you know, kind of community-based things. Um, we recently had a clothing swap. Um, mm -hmm. We are starting a book club, which I will be hosting uh, for the fall. Um, and so anyone who is sober sober curious or just wants to be sober for the night can join us it's really about um a group of folks getting together and just committing to being there in sobriety that's awesome i think um i think there's something it's so important the social aspect and that it not having to be always program recovery program based 
Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Not every time we get together does it have to be a book study. Book study is important. I find it valuable. But you don't always want to be in class, right? No, and you want to <laughs> discover different parts of yourself too, right? And yeah. so, uh, you know, we're also going to be starting a, a softball team. And, you know, I have no idea how that's going to roll for me, but it's going to be a blast, right? Right. Um, it's probably been 20 years since I've played softball, so we'll, we'll give it a go. But, um, you know, as you said, just and exploring different parts of ourselves in sobriety is really good because we can get stuck under that title of addict alcoholic and we forget mm-hmm. that um we're there's way more to us than that so can i ask you um i'm curious because i've talked to other people and the i have no problem saying i'm an alcoholic and i think that it's been really important to as a reminder of of what i'm capable of uh, both negatively and positively but i have had discussions with people over the use of that word and some people think that it is not helpful and that it may even be harmful. I haven't found that in my life, but I'm just curious, you know, you mentioned it earlier on that you're an alcoholic and and how you feel about about the word itself. Yeah, I've I've embraced it uh, for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I fought it for a long time because it had such a, it has such a negative connotation and it I guess it made me have to have this negative lens of, of, of many, many, many people I loved and cared about in my life. And so I fought that word. Mm-hmm. However, when it comes right down to it, that, that at, the, bottom, at the, the end of the day, if I have one drink of alcohol, I will not stop until I am blackout drunk. I am, and that is the definition of alcoholic at its finest. Mm -hmm. And so I truly am that. And it was important for me to solidify in my own mind, like to be 100% sure I, like I just needed to label myself an alcoholic. I don't want my brain to start, I don't want to give it an inch of room to start telling me anything different. Because, you know, it doesn't matter how long I'm in recovery, if I'm not working at it, my thinking goes silly and sideways. And that's part of being an alcoholic and an addict. We have to watch our thinking. Mm-hmm. We always will have to watch our thinking. Um, but it also makes us really aware, sensitive, awesome, honest people. So, you know, as arduous as it can be sometimes, I think it's kind of a, it's a small gift out of uh, recovery that we actually get the opportunity to become better people. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's, and I love the way that you've been talking about, you say my brain and my thinking as if it is, um, it's not me, right? My, my thoughts are not me. There's this other, right? The, the consciousness, whatever I imagine it lives somewhere above my head. That's, that's the best that I have, you know, that I can, that I can imagine, but I, it's important. I feel for me to remember that that's, that's just my thinking and that's my brain and I can use it for good and I can, I can rewire it and I can retrain it and I can say no. And, um, you know, another one of the little metaphors and thoughts and little things that I use is, do you remember a movie called the beautiful mind with Russell Crowe about the mathematician and he's a schizophrenic, 
I, I don't know if he's schizophrenic or multiple personality or he has, he has imaginary friends, right? Like it's, I don't know exactly what the diagnosis was, but at the end of the movie and spoiler alert um, for a movie from 2002 or something, but he sees these people, these imaginary friends that have caused him so much trouble and so much pain. And they're kind of over there in the corner, like saying like, Hey, we're here. Do you want to hang out? And he kind of just looks at him and goes, no, not today. And that's kind of how I look at my, alcoholism and my negative thoughts and my my brain that is trying to tell me that it might be okay and I go oh I know you you're not we're not we're not we're not hanging out today we're not we're not listening to you that's great I hear you we're moving on and I think it's so important to look at our brains as separate separate from ourselves or rather just a single part of our whole being. Yeah, I think you've said that really well. It's a really kind of abstract concept sometimes for people. Mm -hmm. What What do you mean don't believe my own thinking? But um, I think if people really pay attention to their thoughts, they're going to see that there's usually a common narrative. It's usually not very positive and usually Mm -hmm. is all from the past. And so it really doesn't have any any relevance to what's going on today. Being in the present moment is really about ignoring that thinking or not ignoring it. I'm not sure how we deal with it, but we just kind of, we acknowledge it. Sorry, we acknowledge it. We, you know, let it go off to the side. And then, yeah, we, we carry on with what's relevant in the here and now today. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it is an arduous task. Um, but an important one, I think, for uh, us folks in recovery, because yeah, keeping an eye on what's going on on there. And you know, if I'm taking care of myself well in all other aspects of my life, this this tends to go a lot better. The thinking goes a lot better. So yeah. it's all connected, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you struggle with today that you still struggle with today in sobriety? Hmm. Discipline, discipline. Um, I have to work really hard at doing the self-care pieces. Um, I can never wait till I feel like doing it. It is a a mandatory thing for me. I have a schedule. It is written in my book that I exercise Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays because those are, if those things don't happen, then my thinking isn't Mm -hmm. as good. So I have a real, I I meditate, I exercise, I try and eat healthy. However, I still have a terrible sweet tooth. I love sugar. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, those are all the things that I have to do to keep well. I also remind myself every morning that I am an alcoholic. So I have some readings that I do every day because I think it's important for me to know that um, for myself. Um, and so, yeah, um, having a bit of spiritual time in the morning, taking care of my physical wellness, eating well, we're, we're pretty good to go after that. So yeah, then, but making sure I do that is hard. <laughs> yes. Yes. Discipline is important. I, I think I've heard it said that, um, action dictates mood. And so I have to remember that whenever I'm feeling 
sluggish or low or there's a problem. Uh, my new or my latest um, um, fix for that is to just go and do some push-ups <laughs> until, I, until I can't. And then I'll do that. And then I'll be like, oh, okay. What was I concerned about? What was I bothered with? Because when I'm doing push-ups, there's not much else I can think about, right? <clears throat> oh, no, good for you. <laughs> Whatever works, right? Yeah. Just figure it out. So. Yeah. Um, and then, so I, I, finally, where where can people find um, Boring Little Girls Club? And how can they reach out and be a part of these these things? Where are you? You're located, at, this is in Canada, right? We're in Canada. We're in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, actually. Okay. So, yes, we are up here in the mountains. Uh, I don't know if you've ever driven through the Rockies, but um, you really should come okay. on up here. Come <laughs> okay. On up. Yeah. I've been to I've been to Western Canada. I've been to I lived in Seattle for a very long time, so I've been to Victoria and Vancouver, and even up to Nanaimo. But, well done. Well yes. done. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Vancouver Island is where I got well. I lived for 15 years. So okay. special place in my heart for sure. But Boring yes. Little Girls Club is in Calgary. Alberta. Boring Little Girls Club is in Calgary. Yes. And so we are going to be hosting some online and in-person events over the next few months. You do have to check us out online. Mm -hmm. um, so going to boringlittlegirlsclub.com. We have a website and there's a membership form that we ask you to fill out. Because um, uh, once, once you join us, you will then have access and to be invited into all of our events. We just have, um, you know, we have a safe, a safer spaces guideline. And uh, we do need to know that people are comfortable around folks that are trans or non-binary. So we wanna make sure that we have a safe and inclusive environment for anyone who identifies as female in our group. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you just get to hang out with a bunch of um, rad babes who do fun stuff. That sounds great. Um, right. <laughs> Brandy, thank you so much for your time and your story. And it was really great to, to listen to you and talk with you. And again, I'm just always, it's a good reminder to me when I can talk to somebody who I've never met and who comes from a vastly different background and go, yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. So <laughs> I really Isn't appreciate it amazing that the common threads that, that we have and you know, we get to be a part of this big club. Um, we, uh, but you know what I find John is these are really, um, a lot of this is just human nature, like really yeah. accepting our humanness at its core um, for all its ugliness, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again. I appreciate it. And um, Boring Little Girls Club. Um, I just thank you so much. Thank you so much, John. All right. Take care. You too. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at a is for alcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah.